0: Take your Bibles and meet me in Matthew chapter 23, please. Matthew 23, if you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. You can grab that Bible. It's page 991 in that particular Bible. Matthew 23. We are in our last few weeks of our fall series, which we've called the Upside Down Kingdom. We've been taking time to look at the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus showed up on earth, he said, I am now building my kingdom here on earth. And as we are followers of Jesus, we are citizens of this kingdom. And like any other kingdom, the kingdom of heaven has a way about it. It has laws and commandments. It has boundaries. It has a culture. It has values. And so as citizens of that kingdom, if we are followers of Jesus. We are wanting to learn more about what's this kingdom all about? How can we live better in this way of the kingdom of heaven? And what we've been emphasizing in this series is that I have a way that I maybe want to live instinctually. I have a way uh, in my natural self, in my sinful self that wants to live a certain way. The world is constantly telling me to live a certain way. The enemy certainly would want me to live a certain way. And the kingdom of heaven is often the exact opposite of that. It is often upside down to our, our fleshly instincts. It's upside down to the way the world tells us to live. And so we've been wanting to dig into that. Our tagline for the series has been, to learn the ways of the kingdom is to find the will of the king. That we wanna live the way Jesus lived. We wanna follow after his example. And if we wanna live a life that pleases God, then we need to get better at learning how to live out the ways of this upside down kingdom. So as we get going today, I wanna show you a video clip. And it's from the movie Les Miserables, which I've, uh, there's a lot of different versions of that movie, but This was a book by Victor Hugo that he wrote in France in the 1800s. And it's my favorite fiction book of all time. It's an incredible story. And it was turned into a very famous Broadway musical. The musical was turned into a movie a few years ago. So we're gonna show you a clip from the musical movie. So if you like musicals, hey, this is for you. And if you don't, sorry, bear with it for five minutes. And it's an incredible, sorry, sorry, not quite ready. So it's the incredible story of Jean Valjean. And and I have shown you this scene before in a different movie version. So we're showing you the musical one uh, for the first time here. But Jean Valjean uh, was a man who stole some bread to feed his starving family. He got caught and sent to prison. And for various reasons, his term got extended and extended, so what was supposed to be a short prison stay ended up being 20 years in prison. And he is beaten and he is abused, and the guy who went in as a relatively good man who cared about his family uh, has come out of prison now and he is bitter and he is angry and he is uh, just bent on revenge and, and he's just a vicious, evil man. And as he is coming out of prison, uh, no one will hire him, no one will take him in, no one will will do anything for him because he is an ex-convict. And so uh, in the scene that we're about to see, this bitter, angry man is sleeping on the streets because there's nothing else for him to do. Uh, And then a bishop comes along, a man of God comes along. And so now we are ready. Please show the clip. So we'll lay aside a little of the Catholic theology that snuck in there. We would say Jesus is the one who does the saving, obviously, but in the story from there, that is Jean Valjean's born-again moment. He encounters the grace of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God through this bishop, and his life is transformed after that. He becomes a completely different person. He becomes a devout Christian who gives his life to helping the poor and helping others. All of those years of jail weren't able to do it. All of the beatings weren't able to do it. All of the discipline, all of the hardship that was put upon him, all of the efforts to change him uh, through human means weren't enough to change him. He he wasn't any different, if anything, coming out of jail. He was much worse than he was, than he went in. But an encounter with the grace of God, an encounter with mercy, an encounter with compassion was enough to transform his heart. God used that in order to, uh, to save his soul and to make him a completely different person. If you've grown up in church, and, and many of us have, some of us are newer, but if you've been in church for a while, a lot of our strategy towards getting better when it comes to our sin and our evil and our wickedness, would a, a lot of our strategy has been to say, sin is bad, so stop doing it. And we heard sermon after sermon about that. Sin is bad, so knock it off. Sin is bad, so quit doing it. Just stop doing it. And for many of us, we would feel the, the sense of conviction in that moment. We would understand, I know my sin is bad. I know I need to stop doing it. And yet, for some of us, as we try and we try and we try and we try harder and harder and harder and harder, it became no easier to get over our sin. Our sin continued to be something that we struggled with. And so understanding that sin was bad and even hearing the word of the Lord alone was not always enough to be able to get us past this hump. And so this idea that sin is bad, so you just need to work harder at overcoming your sin uh, just didn't end up being an overly effective strategy because our human efforts, our human strength will always run out. So there has to be more to it than that. We acknowledge, of course, sin is bad. Of course, we need to stop doing it. But in that clip, in the story of Jean Valjean, it was a heart change that happened that ultimately helped him to stop sinning. It wasn't just the effort, it wasn't just the hard work. He was transformed by God through this. And so where our natural tendency tends to be, I'm gonna work at it, I'm gonna work harder, I'm gonna make it better, we do that on our own. That's just our instinct is to work harder. The upside down kingdom says, no, actually there's a different way to deal with our sin. There's a better way. There's actually a a more efficient and a more permanent way that we can deal with our sin which we will dig into today so let's take a look at our text we're in matthew chapter 23 in this passage jesus is rebuking the pharisees which i will come back to and explain in just a second so we're in matthew 23 and we're just going to read a few verses starting in verse 25. jesus says woe to you teachers of the law and pharisees you hypocrites You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus and the religious leaders of the day, were butting heads all throughout the gospel. And in this section of Scripture in Matthew 23, it's often called the seven woes. And it is actually the clearest we get of what Jesus' problem is with the Pharisees. We get snippets of it throughout the gospel in different ways, but in this one, Jesus is unpacking. Here's really the problem with these religious leaders. The Pharisees were a group. They were kind of like a denomination of the time. They were a specific group of Jewish people, and they had a specific approach to Scripture and they had specific religious beliefs, just like a denomination would today. And they were doing a lot of the teaching in Israel at the time. They were. Were incredibly popular, they valued Scripture very highly, they loved the Word of God, everything needed to be biblical, and they put a great emphasis on practically living out what the Scripture said. So up to that point, we wouldn't have a lot of problem with them. We would actually say, that's amazing, wow, so they're serious about the Word, they're devoted to the Lord, and they want to live out what they are seeing in Scripture. Hopefully we all want to be that way. Hopefully that's something we would all aspire to. And yet in this discourse, in Matthew 23, we see really what the problem is with the Pharisees. And there's a lot in there. We have just looked at a couple of them. But in these woes, Jesus unpacks, here's the problem with the Pharisees. And in the couple that we're looking at today, it has to do with what's going on inside of them and and how is that being lived out. And so these woes come. And when you read woe in the Bible, uh, you know, we say woe is me. Sometimes it's sort of a, a dramatic thing. But when woe shows up in the Bible, Uh, It's about judgment coming. And it's not even so much an angry word as it's just a despairing cry of judgment is coming upon you. And and it's too late to turn back at this point. It is both sort of a warning uh, and a despair. Woe to you. We see it in the book of Revelation as the earth comes to its end uh, of its current existence. This woe comes. Judgment is coming. This is why judgment is coming. Consequences are coming. Because of your actions. It is not a light and fluffy word. It is not a melodramatic word. Jesus is saying, Pharisees, because of what you've been doing, because of how you've been acting, uh, judgment is coming because of that. And so there's a lot of correction in here and uh, and a lot of unpacking of what's up with the Pharisees. And so verse 25, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And that's how each of the woes starts, all, all seven of them. It's woe, there's judgment coming, teachers of the law and Pharisees hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You look really nice on the outside. You look good on the outside. But on the inside, there, there is a whole bunch of other stuff going on there. There's a term out there called shiny plastic Christians that we can be really good at making ourselves look really good. We can be really good at at not just putting on a fake smile, we do that too, but we can be really good at just making ourselves look good, doing the right things, using the right language, and acting in such a way that we give the projection that we are, are really righteous and holy, and that may be okay, that may be who we are. But the beef with the Pharisees is they were doing that, but the inside wasn't so good that they were putting on the show, that they were making themselves look good, but inside didn't match their outside. It was something they were putting on. We did a series back in the spring called Authentic, where we talked about the false self, that we all do it to some extent. There is a person that we project to the world that's not really fully who we are, but there's a person that we put on in order that the world can see us and we can look as good as we possibly can. For the Pharisees, apparently, there was quite a disconnect between the outer person and the inner person. And when it comes to the Pharisees, because the Pharisees were the enemies of Jesus, because they're kind of the villains in this story, it's really easy when we look at the Pharisees to think of like, oh, I know some other Christians who that describes perfectly. But if we are wise, we will look at the Pharisees and say, Lord, what are you teaching me about me? in this? What are you showing me about myself? Where can I see an area to grow or an area that I need to work on as I look at the Pharisees? And so Jesus says, on the outside, you look great, but on the inside, you're you're." unholy. There's a lot of sin. There is evil going on in there. Elsewhere in the Gospels, in Mark, or yeah, Mark chapter 7, 20 to 23, Jesus would say, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. There's a discussion going on about, can we eat certain things? Because if we eat things, we might be made unclean. Jesus says, food doesn't matter what comes out of a person, not what goes in. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart. That evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus says it's our heart that's the problem. And that doesn't need to be considered an exhaustive list of the only things that come out of the heart. Anything, whatever your sin struggle is, the problem's in the heart. Our heart is fallen, our heart is broken, our heart is sinful. Jeremiah would say the heart is deceptively wicked above all things. Who can understand it? So Jesus says, the heart is the problem. The heart is where all of the evil, all of the sin, everything that we struggle with is coming from. It's not about behavior as much as it's about our heart isn't right. And the behavior is flowing out of our heart. Our words are flowing out of our heart. And so it's not just about fixing the behavior that's going to help us here because our heart still isn't right. Our heart is still broken. Our heart still needs work. And it can be, when we're trying to deal with our sin, it can be a little like a story I've heard in the last week, and I've heard about it from other people at other churches I've been at as well. I know multiple people now who were diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, and so that's the one that we give ourselves. We're not born with it, but through our habits, we can give ourselves type 2 diabetes. But these people made dramatic changes to their lifestyle, to their diet, to their exercise and everything, and they made their diabetes go away, which is incredible. And so they, they just took it seriously. They tackled their health in a new way. And when you have type 2 diabetes, I mean, if you have it, you can just treat it with insulin forever if you want. And it will balance out your blood sugar levels. You can find a way uh, to live with it and treat the symptoms and, and take medication so that it's not too bad. What they did was so much smarter. It was a lot harder. But they went to the root of the problem. They said, we're actually going to treat the diabetes and not just treat the symptoms. And by dealing with the root of the problem, the symptoms then went away as they got healthier. When it comes to sin, we are very ready to treat the symptoms. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna shut my mouth a lot more so I don't say sinful things. I'm gonna change my behavior as much as I can. I'm gonna have an accountability partner. These are all good things and they are all important, but if we don't deal with the heart, then we're just treating the symptoms. Because Jesus says the heart is the problem. The heart is where all the evil and all the sin is coming from. So he would say to the Pharisees, in verse 26, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Now that's not actually how cleaning dishes work, (laughs) if you didn't know that. So he's obviously not talking about literal dishes, he's talking about us. Clean up the inside first, and then the outside will follow. Clean up the inside first, and then the outside will be better. And so just to say sin is bad, stop doing it, can be like we're just washing the outside of the dish. Jesus says deal with what's going on inside first, and then the outside will follow. When we don't do that, we can fall into what Dallas Willard called the gospel of sin management where it's, it's very much a part of the color of how we look at things here in the West, where uh, the gospel comes, Jesus comes basically just to deal with sin. He comes to forgive our sins, to pay for our sins, to buy us eternity, and our job is to work harder in order to not sin anymore because we're so grateful for what he's done. There is truth in all of that, but the fullness of the gospel isn't just about you're dealing with sin, it's about you are going to be transformed. It's about you are going to be a new creation. It's not about you're just going to be dealing with the symptoms of sin for the rest of your life. And through, even with God's help, through discipline and through accountability, you're just going to work harder and harder and hopefully keep the symptoms in check. The gospel comes that you may have life and have it to the full comes that you would be a new creation. It comes that you would be transformed. And as much as we do need some of those checks and balances for sure, we do need to have self-discipline. We do need accountability. We need help on the outside for sure when it comes to dealing with our sin. Jesus would put it this way in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. So if the tree is just rotten, it will continually produce rotten fruit. If the tree is healthy, it will continually produce healthy fruit. And Jesus' plan for us is not that we would be still sinful on the inside and dealing with the brokenness and the baggage of our lives and continually producing rotten fruit that we just deal with the fruit part of it, but it's that the tree would be transformed into something good. The tree would be renewed. The tree would be made good. And then as the tree is made good, the fruit that follows will also be good as we deal with the root. It's upside down to our natural tendency to just want to work harder until we kind of are able to overcome it. Because it requires us to have a lot of faith and a lot of trust and put ourselves in God's hands and acknowledge, hey, my heart is deceptively wicked above all things. I I recognize that. I recognize that I have woundedness in my life that makes me act a certain way. I recognize that I have baggage in my life that weighs me down. I recognize that I have sinful impulses that I can make excuses for all I want, but Jesus says, no, you want that because that's just in you. You want that because your heart wants that thing. We often say the heart wants what it wants. That is very true, and what it wants is not always good. But that's not the end of it. That is not the end of the story. We don't wanna just be dealing with symptoms. When we lived in Sudbury, uh, Sarah calls me at work one day and says the kitchen ceiling is leaking. And it was one of the big melts. Sudbury gets tons of snow and so we'd often have three or four feet of snow on top of our roof and so the weather was warm, it started to melt and some water came in in our kitchen. And so it was short-lived and we realized at the time we looked at it and, and took a look around and said, well, it's probably uh, what's called ice damming, which is where the snow kind of gets under the, uh, the tiles of your roof and it just kind of filters down. It was kind of a fluky thing. It didn't happen again. And so we didn't worry too much about it. Uh, we just covered up the spot and we carried on with our lives. So the next winter at the first big melt, it happened again. And this time there was a lot more, a lot more water was pouring in. And so, all right, now we need some help. Uh, So Sarah's dad came over, and he came up, and he take a look, and he says, okay, I think I see there's actually water coming in upstairs. I can see it up in the attic. And so I'm going to go, I'm going to block that up, and that should work, and, and then we should be done. Uh, But that wasn't actually where the water was coming in. And it took a while for us to figure out eventually uh, where the water was coming in. It took a lot of times. Now, we could have just, it always just happened once a year. It happened when it was melting. And so we could have just year after year went, you know what, we'll just paint over the drywall or we'll just patch it up and replace it. It's not doing any major damage, so we can just do that year after year after year. Or you can go to the root of the problem, where is it coming in, and fix it for good. And then you don't have to do all that maintenance work year after year after year. So we did eventually solve it. It it took more time, honestly, to solve it. It was a harder process to solve the root problem. But in the long run, it pays off a lot more because you're not doing the same work over and over and over again. So even if it takes longer to deal with the root of our stuff, it's ultimately more efficient. It's ultimately uh, a better way to go. It ultimately accomplishes more. As we go through our passage, verse 27, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are filled full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So another metaphor here, just like the cup and the dish that Jesus was just talking about. Uh, tombs in Israel were painted bright white because Jewish people were not to go anywhere near a dead body. It would make you ceremonially, ceremonially unclean if you came into contact with a dead body. And so tombs were painted bright white just to say this is not just a, a rock. This is not just a, a, a park, you know, a monument or anything like that this is a tomb and even in the moonlight you could see it lit up because they were so brightly painted and Jesus says Pharisees that's you and if we are humble enough to acknowledge ourselves as Pharisees in some ways we can probably say that is me that there are ways in which I look really good but not everything in me is totally good and so uh, Jesus uses this picture of this tomb on the you're so bright and shiny you look so beautiful on the outside but inside There is a lot going on there. So again, Jesus is saying it's what's inside that is the problem. It's not the outer behavior that is the issue as much as what's going on inside. The heart is the problem. The heart is where all evil is coming out of. The heart is where all of our sin is coming out of. And the heart is deceptively wicked above all things. Who can understand that? And yet, even so, as we quote that verse from Jeremiah all the time, that the heart is deceptively wicked above all things, I mean, that's the word of God. That's the promise of the word of God. We acknowledge that the heart is deceptively wicked. The heart is the problem. The heart is where sin is coming from. And yet, that's not the only promise about the heart that we find in the word of God. The heart is deceptively wicked. It is. It's the source of sin? Absolutely. Here's another promise through the prophet Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six. He would go on to say in that passage, I'm going to put my Holy Spirit inside you. And he will lead you, and he will work with you, and he will help you. So yes, the heart is deceptively wicked. The promise of the blood of the new covenant is you get a new heart. You're a new creation. That sinful, broken, deceptively wicked thing is in a process of being entirely renovated and transformed. The promise of God is you are being made new. And even if the heart is the problem, the strategy of God is not behavior modification. It's heart renovation. And then as the heart is being renovated, the behavior will follow because the heart is being purified and the heart is being made new. The heart is being transformed. We are being sanctified. We are being made holy. We are being formed into the image of Christ. We are being made completely new by his power and by his grace. And as the problem, the root problem, gets dealt with, the behavior will become easier. So it's one thing to say, hey, Every one of us has a sin that we struggle with. And to say, okay, so you have this sin that you struggle with, you're going to work hard at it your whole life, and at best, you'll be able to maintain the symptoms. That's not super exciting or hopeful. But the promise or the picture is, no, God's going to do the work in your heart so that you don't want to do that anymore. Isn't that better? And it, again, it might be harder to do the heart work. It might take longer. It might be easier to say, we'll just maintain, because at least I know what I'm in for. But once the heart begins to be transformed, we do become different people. I love meeting the people who've gone through AA and struggled through addiction who say, I don't even think about alcohol anymore. Like, it's, I, I stay on top of it. I do the steps. But, but it is not a pull for me anymore. People who have gone through uh, the, the hard work of looking at your heart and working on your heart instead of just dealing with the symptoms, getting to the root of the problem. A number of years ago, Sarah and I were staying at my parents' house. They were out of town, and uh, while they were away, there was this huge torrential storm, kind of like we had this week on Halloween. Uh, this huge, like just unbelievable, Easter. you never heard rain like that. You never heard wind like that. And in the laundry room, uh, we went in to check on something, and water was seeping in like crazy from the corner. Water was just pouring in. It wasn't this, but it looked a little like that. Just from the corner, water was seeping in, and it was coming in fast. And so I have a mop and I'm trying to soak it up and Sarah's getting towels and laying them down and then sort of rotating them into the dryer and out again. And so for like 15, 20 minutes, we're we're just trying to stay on top of it so the basement doesn't flood. And yet more and more water is just coming in and realizing, okay, we got to stop the water from coming in. We can mop all night long and I can stand here for 12 hours but maybe we can find out where it's coming in. And so uh, I went out into the hurricane that was happening at that time, and I went to the corner of the house and realized that there was a downspout there that had become plugged. And because it was plugged, water was pouring just down the, the foundation of the house. And so once the thing got unplugged and the water started flowing away from the house properly, the water stopped coming in the basement at that point. And again, we could have stayed there all night and just mopped up the water, And it wasn't fun to go out into the hurricane and get it unplugged in the gale-force winds out there. It was probably worse work to do that, and yet once the root got solved, everything else got solved. We didn't have to keep treating the symptom anymore. The root problem got dealt with. And so all of this requires us, number one, just to take a really honest, good look in the mirror. Really honest. Not telling ourselves who we wanna be or, or who we want other people to think we are, but to have an honest look of, hey, where is there sin? Continually a struggle in my life. What are my sin struggles? If you look at that list from Mark chapter seven where Jesus said the sexual immorality and the envy and everything that comes out of the heart, maybe that's a good starting point. To look at that list and say, hey, where am I in this list if I'm being honest? Where are my struggles? Where are my uh, continual areas that I stumble into? It's not necessarily gonna be the same for everybody, but to take an honest look in the mirror and acknowledge, okay, so uh, Jesus says, whatever I am doing in those areas is coming out of my heart. So there are parts of my heart that are not healed yet. There are parts of my heart that are not redeemed yet, that are not renovated yet. So let's acknowledge that first. And let's find someone in our life that we can talk to about that. You don't need to tell the world. But scripture says confess your sins to one another not just confess them to the lord but confess them to one another one person in your life that you can talk to about your struggles and then the emphasis being okay i i can have the accountability i'm going to work on my behavior that is part of it but how am i going to deal with the root stuff how am i going to get my heart uh, more and more transformed and here's just a few things to think about as we go number one it's going to include the word of god It cannot happen without the Word of God. The Word of God is living and active. The Word of God is what convicts us of sin. It is what challenges us. It is what renews our mind. Uh, If we are just doing a drive-by two minutes, five minutes in the Word of God every day, and then flipping that with four hours of Netflix later, that's a lot more Netflix than Word of God that we're taking in. And our life might start to pattern a little more towards what we are taking in. And and I don't think you need as much Word, because the Word of God is powerful. But always good to say, okay, where is this fitting in as a priority in my life? God's Word is holy. It is living. It is active. It convicts us of sin. It changes us. It transforms us. It makes us different as we take it in, as we meditate on it. So how are we engaging with God's Word? That's the first question. Where are we engaging with that? We can't be made new without it. God's word is gonna be crucial to this process. But it can't just be about the word of God alone. The Pharisees were really good at the word of God. The Pharisees knew the word of God backwards and forwards, and yet they did not look very godly. So it's not going to just be the word. It's gonna be the word and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes us holy. He is the one who sanctifies us. It is we are reborn of the Spirit, Jesus says in John chapter 3. And so we are not just wanting to engage with the Word alone. We are wanting to engage with the Holy Spirit as well. If our prayer daily isn't, Lord, fill me with your Spirit, we are missing out on an opportunity to encounter God. Fill me with your Spirit, Lord. Fill me with your Spirit. Change me by your Spirit. Renew me by your Spirit. Make me holy. By your spirit. It's going to start with praying those types of prayers. And not just that, but I've challenged you with this before. Where in your life do you feel closest to God? Where do you feel you connect with the Holy Spirit? Where do you feel closest to him? What's a filling station in your life? For some of us, it's worship. We feel closest to God through worship. For some of us, it's study and digging into the word and engaging in study. For some of us, it's talking about spiritual things with other people. For some of us, it's getting alone and reflecting quietly by ourselves. For some of us, it's going out into nature and spending time with God and his creation. There's lots of different ways it can look. But where do you feel filled with the Spirit? Where do you feel close to Him? Because if the Holy Spirit is the one who's actually doing the work of changing us, then we need to make time for Him. We need that to be a priority. We need to spend time in His presence. In His presence, we are transformed. So it's going to happen through the Word of God. It's going to happen through the Spirit of God. And it's going to happen through the family of God. It's going to happen through the community, and that can look lots of different ways, Um, but it's going to happen as we engage with other believers who can encourage us, who can challenge us, who can pray for us, who can bear our burdens with us. It is not possible to walk with Jesus by ourselves. We need a community, and the community has to go deeper than just coming into a room on a Sunday morning. That's a great start. But we need more than that. We need deeper than that. We need Christians that we can talk to and pray with and who can hold us accountable and who we can encourage and who can encourage us and who can point out where they think we're getting off track and we can help them when they're getting off track. And and when we come and we say, I'm struggling with this sin, they will still love us and accept us as brothers and sisters and pray for us and help us and bear that burden with us. We can't do it entirely by ourselves. We need each other as we do this. And through these three things, through the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the family of God, we are ultimately connecting with him who does the transforming. He is the one who does the changing. Our job is to connect ourselves to him. And we don't have to do that. We can work harder. We can work harder and work harder and work harder. And keep working at it and work even harder. And that there's something about that that just feels like common sense. If you just work harder, you will eventually get where you are going. But the problem is, if the root's never dealt with, you're just going to be working harder and harder and harder. The bad fruit just keeps growing back until you pull the thing out from the roots. And so the heart needs to be changed. And the heart gets changed by him as we connect ourselves to him. And if we are willing to do maybe the harder work of pressing into him, then that's better, harder work than just trying harder on my own to be more disciplined and to, to fix it by myself. We connect with him. We get transformed. Our behavior will follow from there. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done. Thanks for bearing with me. We're a couple minutes late today just because we had a lot going on. So the promise of God's word that Jesus backs up is that the heart is deceptively wicked. The heart is the problem. Jesus would say, yes, the heart is the problem. All evil in us is coming out of our broken, sinful hearts. But the continual promise from there is God says, I will give you a new heart. I will renew your heart. I will heal your heart. I will restore your heart. The promise of God keeps going. It doesn't just tell us that we're terrible sinners. It tells us God's hopeful, incredible solution to the sin problem. And it's not just about dealing with the symptoms over and over and over again. We always want to change the behavior. And as we change the behavior, we trust that the character will follow. But the way of the upside-down kingdom is like, no, change the character on the inside. Change the heart. And then the behavior will follow from there. Like, it's so exhausting to just work on our sin, work on our sin, work on our sin. It's discouraging, then, if we fall again. It's discouraging if we're just constantly battling that temptation. The promise of Scripture is your heart can be renewed to a place where you don't want to do that stuff anymore. We can be restored. We can be renewed. And it might be a little harder to do that, pressing in the hard work of that connection with God. But at the same time, the results long-term are way better, way more permanent, way more efficient, way more incredible, way more amazing. His grace is promised to us to do that. We're going to spend a bit more time in worship, and then we'll pray to close. Would you please stand with me? The words will be up on the screen.